Hey everyone, Kate Oliveira here. We won't have a typical episode of the podcast this week. Instead, we're really excited to bring you a special episode sponsored by the University of Dallas. In this episode, JD and Ed will talk about Catholic education with the president of the University of Dallas, Dr. Jonathan Sanford. This conversation was taped earlier this month during the university's annual Groundhog Day celebrations. It's a really interesting conversation, and we're excited to share it with you. And as an FYI, there were a couple technical difficulties with the audio, so please be patient with us. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and this is a very special live episode of the Pillar Podcast at the University of Dallas, where we have a big and enthusiastic crowd who are going to say things now about how excited they are to be uh, I'm joined, of course, by my... Thank you. That was awesome. Actually, I feel... I didn't feel good about myself, and now I do feel good about myself, except for that boo guy. Um, but even he, that guy has a strong opinion about me, and that still lets me feel like I'm kind of the center of the universe, which is the whole goal of having a podcast. So thank you for that. I'm very grateful. Uh, I'm joined, of course, by my podcasting partner and pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, but I'm more especially joined, uh, gl- glad to be joined by the president of the University of Dallas, where we are, Dr. J.J. Sanford. So, Dr. Sanford, thank you so much for being with us. It is such a pleasure. You've come a long way, J.D. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that. Uh, I, I, that's very kind of you to say, and I want to talk about our longstanding association. But first, Ed and I are very excited to announce something, and we're actually really humbled by this. Uh, right before we sat down and began the show, Dr. Sanford told Ed and I something which really just blew us away. We, we were not expecting this, but um, he told us that the University of Dallas intends to confer upon us today Two honorary doctorates, and we are so so. This is a dream that JD had last night. (laughs) Someday, 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 if I if I hand in my honorary thesis at the right time, I can have an honorary doctorate. So it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen today. But maybe maybe we can have a mock. Honorary degree. honorary degree. Would that be satisfying? Yeah, I, I would be. I would be. That would be sufficient for me. Ed, would you feel okay about that? I, I think really, if you want to give JD the right feeling that you're looking to give him, just give me an honorary doctorate and not him. I, I like that. That would. That would. I think tick all the boxes. I'll, I'll give him a higher grade on his metaphysics paper. Well, my question is, so Dr. Sanford said that because I think that I had you. So uh, Dr. Sanford was a professor at my uh, beloved alma mater, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, at the time when I was an undergraduate there. I think you were probably my metaphysics professor. I don't know. I wasn't particularly paying attention in the class. You probably noticed that and some metaphysical deficiencies and what I have to say. But what I do remember you for is that you were um, uh, my landlord. And so what I wonder is, are we not allowed to have the honorary doctor because we didn't get our security deposit back? Or I'm pretty sure you got the security deposit we back. We shouldn't have. Dr. Sanford, imagine... All, all $325. <laughs> that's exactly... That's exa- imagine young Dr. Sanford, a young professor at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, raising a, a lot of kids on a professor's salary, decides one way that I'm going to help to supplement our family income is to buy some houses in Steubenville where they're not very expensive, maybe even just buy one house and rent it out to students. And that way, you know, we'll be able to kind of invest for our family. Prudent, wise, discerning, that's the kind of guy he is. Well, he rented it to um, me and my friends, and we ruined his beautiful house. And I have felt bad. I have to tell you, I've felt badly about that for nigh on these 20 years. I, I apologize. Well, uh, apology accepted. Well, thank you. That's Now, the, the house could not be ruined all that much. It, 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 was, it was a rough neighborhood. I bought that house for $27,000. Um, that was, uh, I think it's still worth 23000 today. Pro- probably the way Steubenville's been going lately. Yeah. Oh. 
Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Not the university. No, yeah, wonderful, a wonderful place. But I want to talk about this wonderful place, if we can, if for no other reason than I feel like we need to transition out of that now. Um, but, uh, but we're really glad to be here. And one of the things we've noticed here at the University of Dallas, even since we got here, is just, and maybe it's because of the time when we're here for this groundhog thing, but just how engaged uh, your students are, how present they are in the camp. I mean, one of the things that has most struck me about being here thus far is that I see students walking around talking to each other and not looking at their phones. How have you done that? It's not something I've done. It's, it's really the, the um, magic of the university, if I can put it in those terms. Um, the place is alive with intellectual engagement. Students all go through the same core curriculum. That increases radically the, the circle of friends. Everyone's a potential friend, and this happens in our alumni community as well. They're all arguing about whether Achilles is the greater hero than Odysseus. The, He's obviously not. Yeah, he obviously is. Um, and given sufficient time, I'll establish that conclusion with certainty. But this is the sort of thing that happens around here all the time. And our students learn how to engage in serious intellectual debate because our professors are focused on helping them to craft their interpretations, to put forward an interpretation, to receive criticism without wilting before it, without screaming in protest, right? So this lost art of knowing how to argue without quarreling is cultivated in day one in the classroom. Students learn that the the life source of the kind of engagements that really vivify the place is that engagement around fundamental texts. And our core curriculum is, is not just one that's focused on the humanities, although it robustly is, but all of our students take two science courses with labs. All of our students take courses in economics. All of our students take either art or math and um, that's a strange dichotomy, but um, many of them do both. And we've got this Rome program where they live together, and Europe becomes a kind of laboratory for their um, experimentation in European history and culture, and most importantly, the faith. So I have a question about that. You, you mentioned the core curriculum, and you give a wonderful example of arguing about who is the greater hero, Achilles or Odysseus. And again, it's obviously not Achilles. Um, I wonder, there's a great enthusiasm for sort of, quote-unquote, a classical curriculum right now in, in education, and particularly in Catholic education in this country. But education is, I suppose, the training of the mind, the forming of mental habits, and, and the, a way of working and also shaping character. And it's about the transmission of knowledge. But scholarship is an act of discovery. Scholarship goes out, scholarship is pushing the the borders, you know, in Excordia Ecclesia, it talks about, you know, that it's always moving forward. It's very much a dynamic, outward-looking pursuit. Is there ever a risk of becoming ossified with the sort of use of a classical-looking curriculum and things like that? Is that a danger? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. And it, it gives me an opportunity to balance out the, the emphasis that I was placing on the tradition. So um, you may not know this, but our graduates do really well getting into med school, for instance. So our placement rates are on par with Ivy League schools. Our graduates have outstanding placements in PhD programs and law schools. Many of them go right into the corporate world and climb ladders very quickly. Why? 
it's really a, a both and. Ex corde ecclesia, as, as you rightly noted, always pairs the emphasis on teaching with the, the addition to the growing body of, of knowledge. That's something we take seriously here at the University of Dallas. So one of the reasons why, for instance, our, our science majors are so successful in um, their med school placements is because our full-time faculty are engaged with them in research in the classrooms getting them into internships, um, and in fact, producing new research while they're undergraduate students. This doesn't just happen in the sciences. It happens in the other disciplines. And we've got serious bars that need to be surpassed in order to receive tenure at the University of Dallas. All of our faculty are actively engaged in increasing the body of research that finds its way into the classrooms. And uh, we spend a lot of time as a faculty celebrating our achievements, communicating what we've done on our sabbaticals or, or the latest project. Students participate in those activities as well. So the, the tradition is not one that is there to be studied as a thing of the past. We, we study history. Four history courses are in the core curriculum so that we're able to navigate the, the future. And uh, the study of history is a kind of recovery of your humanity as a, as a political being. And uh, so, too, with the other disciplines. There's a, an orientation towards living a life of magnanimity that is the fruit of the education we provide. We want our students to really sanctify their work, to be the best teacher, the best bishop. We've had 11 bishops come through the University of Dallas to be the best in whatever field that God has called them into. And um, that, too, is work that takes place in the classroom. And, and how is that? It seems to me that that, um, that laudable focus comes under a, a number of challenges in the contemporary milieu, which we can talk about. But one of them is, it seems to me, just a, a political challenge, right? I mean, um, it's one thing, I think, for a Catholic university, if, if, um, if all it's sort of doing is repeating what's iterated in the catechism to sort of say, well, this is, this is very clearly sort of our Catholic identity and we have some religious liberty protection there. But when a university is doing kind of scholarship in the academy and maybe in, in popular settings as well that is animated by a Catholic ethos, it seems to me it may even be putting itself further out on a limb in terms of like the political liability that comes along with that in the contemporary climate. How, how, do, how does a university which aims to really be um, moving the ball intellectually protect itself from those challenges? There's a lot that might be said in, in response to that. We have not circled the wagons, would be an analogy to use um, to describe what you were just saying. We want our students collaborating with students at, at other universities. We, we share a number of relationships with other universities. We want our students going out and giving presentations and the like. And so um, the truth wins out, right? When, when we're overprotective of what we know to be the case by faith, we fail to listen, we, we uh, fail to really be receptive to those nuggets that might be um, gleaned from other traditions, other insights in um, ongoing research. Um, Augustine describes this so beautifully when he's, he's talking about um, the Christian relationship to pagan culture, right? We um, want to be like the the Israelites when they left Egypt and um, were able to, to take uh, gold with them. Uh, there's gold to be found in, in every discipline. But if, if you've really learned how to defend the positions, if you're really seeking 
the truth. And if you have confidence that the truth is defendable, it is able to be found, then um, you're individually, as a, as a student, as a graduate of the university, well prepared to, to really be that living witness, adding to a, um, really a, uh, an effort in renewing our culture. Right? But if, 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 if we're overly protective, we don't learn how to engage with those ideas. And we're not, we're not actually doing, I think, what, what Christians are called to do, which, which is to build culture, to be the salt and light in the world. That, that'll, that'll come up in the gospel reading tomorrow. Yeah. We should be attentive to that, that calling to be, to be light. It's interesting what you say about building a common culture because, I mean, it's, it's one of the things I was, as you probably have guessed, rereading Excordia Ecclesia before we had this conversation. I don't tend to have apostolic constitutions on Catholic universities. Oh, don't beat yourself up. You do, Ed. You're, great. You're wonderful. You know. I, I, I have it on, 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 I the, do, actually. on the header on my computer. It's, right. it's, 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 it's Stanford's Office of Readings to cycle through Excordia over and over. It's really yeah. impressive. It's amazing. No, but it, it, um, St. JP the Two said, and what I found was a sort of jarring statement, but then when I read it over again, I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. It's just not how I think about it, and if it's not how I think about it, it's probably something that I need to think about more, which is, he speaks of there not being cultures, plural. There is only one human culture, and the church's job is to feed into it, and to perfect it, and to illuminate it, and to develop it. And I wonder, we often talk about Catholic universities having a uniquely Catholic culture, and is there a tension between a mindset that says, yeah, there's something particular about a Catholic university. There is something particular about the idea of a university that is Catholic and at the same time is part of the wider single human culture. Like, how do you avoid a kind of, get, you know, sort of ghettoized mindset that says, well, we're, we're a world apart. We are, for lack of a better word, a sort of Benedict option. A shining we, city on a hill. Yeah. No, it, it's it's a, um, a really important question, a timely question, and, and one that I and many people here have been, have been wrestling with. So um, in, in Excordia Ecclesiae, when uh, St. John Paul II is emphasizing that commonality of human culture, he identifies the source of it to be the truths about the human person, right? So it, it, it all starts with a, an accurate anthropology. Right. What what is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human understood biologically, philosophically? What does it mean to be human understood through the eyes of the faith, where we are homogenes eight, right? We're we're all images of God. And um, that provides a kind of commonality from which smaller cultures or or permutations of that fundamental culture can subcultures isn't necessarily a bad word. Yeah. Yeah, this this is also something that I think is is pointing to the continual relevance. I think forever relevance of Saint uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, where he doesn't name his collection of lectures on um, the idea of a university, the idea of a Catholic university. He was charged with founding a Catholic university, and he articulated what it is to be a university. He makes a robust case for theology as a science. It's a discipline. It's not, it's not something outside of the fold of human investigation that doesn't have a place within a university. And that case is really a case for a richer, fuller university, 
the, the idea of a Catholic university is the idea of a university. And speaking historically, all other universities are in a way a permutation of the idea of a Catholic university. Similarly, the, the education provided at a Catholic university, if it's, if it's arranged in the way that Newman describes, where we come to appreciate both the interconnectedness of each of the disciplines, but also their distinctness. He's very concerned to, to keep the boundaries clear and um, recognize that at, at the, the source of all human knowledge is God and at the summit of all human knowledge is God. So there's, there's a, a deep appreciation, not just for the liberal arts. He, he makes a very strong case for the inclusion of professional disciplines within a liberal arts university. And, and in fact, the most successful part of the university that he founded was the medical school. Newman made that case, uh, and I think it's a convincing case, uh, and it has obviously stood the test of time, but it was not a convincing case to his actual bosses, the bishops of Ireland, who wanted no part of it. What did they want? They wanted a catechetical school that would be a feeder for their seminary, period. And Newman gave them something very different, and that's why he had time to write idea of a university. (laughs) (laughs) But it it raises an interesting question, because a a university uh, which, which aims to be Catholic has a set of ecclesial relationships where the church has certain expectations or desires for the university, where the university wants to um, engage with the ecclesial community, and that includes the sort of hierarchical community. And it seems navigating those relationships today, when, um, when, when sort of the ecclesial community itself is in, in, in danger of all kinds of polarization and fracturing and, and disagreement and all those, w- would be increasingly difficult. I mean, what, what, is the, what is the approach for a university administrator just to think about where it fits kind of in the ecclesial landscape? Yeah. Um, you know, there... Uh, you're both canon lawyers, um, yes, and and uh, and honorary would, doctors of the University of Dallas. Honorary doctors of the University of Dallas. So um, you know that there are you know different possible structures by which a Catholic university can be recognized as a Catholic university. The structure of the University of Dallas is is quite different, and uh, there's this Newman Guide list of of schools, and um, most of the the schools on that list have differences from our structure. Um, so, you, you know, a religious community, you graduated from Franciscan University. Um, I grew up in South Bend um, next to the University of Notre Catholic Dame. Catholic college in South yeah, Bend, yeah. Indiana? I didn't know. Um, People graduate from Subinville? <laughs> oh. Yeah, but then oh. they, have... do, they do, do they Do they and get the security deposit? And then they host deposit? podcasts for a living. <laughs> the... the um, so the Congregation of Holy Cross, the Third Order Regular uh, Franciscans, uh, Jesuits, they establish a university. They have to form a bond with the, the, uh, uh, the local bishop. Um, and then you've got diocesan universities that are controlled in some measure by um, the bishop and, and the chancery. We're independent. We're, we were established as a lay-run university, and that has opened avenues for a lot of different religious communities, each with their own structure. So we've got a Dominican Priory on campus. We've got the Cistercians just next door, Holy Trinity Seminaries on campus, Redemptorist Mater Seminary um, in Dallas. It sends their men both for their minor and their major formation. We need to maintain a very strong relationship with the diocese. Our bishop, Bishop Burns, is a, a great advocate for the University of Dallas. He, his title is as the chancellor of the university, but that's not like how chancellor is used in other 
universities where that might be the president of a couple of, of campuses or something like that. He's on our, our board. So too are three other bishops who are graduates of the University of Dallas. Um, but they don't, they don't form a kind of controlling nexus. We've got lay men and women who are um, working in collaboration with me to make sure that we stay faithful to who we are as an institution. And we see ourselves in service to the church, certainly here in, in uh, DFW. We draw students from all 50 states and multiple countries. And we're in service to the church in America. We're in service to um, the church universal. But um, I would say, you know, the relationships with different dioceses, they vary. So we, we've got seminarians from several dioceses who come and study at Holy Trinity Seminary. And um, we need to maintain good relations with the, the bishops there. The uh, Catholic University of America has um, you know, a very important role to play within the universities of the U.S. It's, it's very different. They're, they're controlled ultimately by, by the bishops. And I'm on friendly terms with many of those bishops. They see the value of, of what we do, um, but I'm not controlled by them as the president of this university. So I, I think that this kind of distance between the ecclesial structures is really beneficial to who we are in, in the sense of, of uh, it's on us to be faithful. Um, we, we need to be affirmed as a Catholic university. All of our theology faculty receive mandata, and that recognition is, is important. But um, um, we're, we're able to be of service in the ways that we feel most called to be in different areas of the country. I, I find it interesting that you say that the, the sort of intentional lay founding of the university and your, your closeness to the bishops, but not controlled by or to religious institutes, societies of apostolic life or whatever, um, can be fruitful, but yet the university stands sort of independent and it has this sort of intentional lay leadership and um, direction to it. And that you said it's beneficial. And I can see how it can be beneficial, but I suppose what I'm saying is I don't think it can be taken as read that it necessarily would be because isn't the story of much of a Catholic universities in the United States is that they are founded by the church. They are founded by institutions of the church, religious orders, whatever it is. And then they get sort of hived off in what you might call an act of mass illicit appropriation or expropriation uh, and sort of turned into independent lay bodies. And as they have, they've drifted away from the church. They've drifted away from their Catholic identity. They've drifted away from all the things that made them uniquely Catholic in the first place. So is it a question of founding intent and staying true to that, to your mind? Because I, I don't suppose the evidence we've seen in this country is that independent lay leadership is necessarily good for a Catholic university. Yeah, I'm not sure that I agree with your um, explanation of, of why a number of Catholic universities have drifted away from their, their founding purpose, and, and I'd be happy to explore that. Um, I, I think it matters that it was Bishop Gorman who decided on this structure in collaboration with um, a group of, at that time, all laymen. He, he could have gone different directions. There was a, a religious community that that held the the right to refound the University of Dallas. They tried to a community of, of sisters, um, sisters of Our Lady of Namur, uh, who were based in Fort Worth and ran a junior college at the time. 
there was an earlier iteration of the University of Dallas. We were actually founded initially, I think it was 1905, and um, we were in Dallas proper. We're just on the cusp of Dallas right now, near where um, the Dallas or uh, Jesuit uh, Preparatory School is. And it was a different kind of university. We beat University of Notre Dame um, in football at, at one point. It's not as hard as I <laughs> gathered the Just well, it, it's really hard when you don't have a football team, um, which we don't now. So, so you know, there, there was this charter. Um, there was there was a, a a group of women religious who didn't feel up to the task. Bishop Gorman was himself a, a great academic, um, a historian educated at Freeburg, who understood what would be required to have a great Catholic university, and he he said that he wanted the University of Dallas to be that, to be a, a great Catholic university, to make real contributions to the growing body of knowledge, and not just to be a Catholic university serving the local Catholic population. And that entailed establishing a graduate school. That was part of the, the very origin of this refounding of the University of Dallas in, in 1955, and then opened our doors in, in 56. And and he thought it was critical to have this kind of structure. So it was baked in from the beginning with with a um, an established relationship with the diocese. And the way I think about the University of Dallas versus a Franciscan, w- which had really fallen away in the seventies, and it was you know, they had their own story about how they were regarded as a great party school. And, Playboy magazine apparently um, listed them in the yeah, top ten. I don't 10. know what that is, Doctor Sanford. Yeah. I, 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 um, elaborate, Dan. please. Um, <laughs> and and then you know, Father Michael Scanlon um, refounded it, and and so Franciscan has a kind of revert vibe to it as an institution. We're we're like a a um, you know cradle Catholic institution that has continued to mature and become more fully who we are. So. Um, there's there's not a there's not a a um, a concern a, a, a real concern that we're about to slide into something that we were before. We've we've resisted the trend of decimating our core curriculum, which I think is a, a major factor in um, what happened at a lot of these other universities, where they were chasing new programs with really large majors that effectively forced that kind of, of elision of their core curriculum. And um, those, those other religious communities around us helped build us up. Our, our Cistercian brethren, our, our Dominican brethren, we've got Nashville Dominicans teaching for us now, and we're building a convent for them on campus. Their, their fidelity helps to build up what we're all about. So we cannot be complacent and just say, we're going to be fine. Um, but our our structure and our intellectual vision um, work hand in hand. Newman was baked into the very beginning, and then when Excordia Ecclesiae came out, I think the response here was, "Well, yeah, of course." So there's there's this organic growth that is, I think, um, really predicated upon that that vision that Bishop Gorman had. It's an extraordinary responsibility for you and the board then to kind of. Um continue to challenge yourself to retain and sort of uh, assess your own Catholic identity and um, and uh, your own fidelity to the teachings. I mean, it just seems that, that it would be a tremendous responsibility. And one of the temptations that I would think about is just as you kind of look at the landscape of higher ed in America now, not just Catholic higher ed, but higher ed, 
a lot of schools are facing sort of demographic and financial challenges. How do we continue to make the thing run, especially how do we continue to make the thing run and have students who come and pay tuition? And the temptations are things like asynchronous instruction and sort of very large online programs and sort of figuring out how to navigate where to sort of dip your toe into some of those waters and to retain at the same time the sort of core ed core sense that is at the heart of the University of Dallas would be a challenge. So how, how do you assess how big is enough and where what what the right kind of growth looks like for a place like this? Yeah, well, that that's a, that's a um, another timely question because um, our enrollments have been trending up, and um, we're increasingly selective. We're, we're trying to be really reflective about the sort of students who are going to flourish here. Uh, they don't have to be the kind of students who will graduate yet, but they need to be the sort of students who will graduate as the kind of ideal University of Dallas graduate, and you know, we, we have a couple of, of uh, stable elements that help push against that trend towards online education or uh, over large classes. One, one of which is the core curriculum itself. Um, we're we're not we're we're not going to fold on that. And there have been periodic pressures to do so. You know, engineering, big field, we could do so much if we had an engineering degree. It would attract a lot of young men because a disproportionate number of men are um, finding their way into engineering. And all of these uh, liberal arts schools um, are a little imbalanced in terms of men and women. That, that's the logic I hear amongst the um, um, leaders of other universities, not just Catholic universities. For us to do that, would, would jettison a substantial part of the core curriculum? We'll get rid of our language requirement, get rid of... Maybe two of those literature courses. Those, those will have two, right? And people have made their 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 bargains, and sometimes it works just fine um, in the sense of you still have something. But what it is to be a an undergraduate student at this university needs to mean more or less the same thing continuously. So we're committed as a board to that. And and then we we have this Rome program. We've just opened up a, a summer term because um, it was experimental after COVID. Not as many students were able to go. And although we, we did persevere um, with that program, that campus can only be so large. And I, I want um, our sophomores and some juniors to still be able to spend a semester there. If we get too big, that won't be possible. The summer term is, is a way to, to, to do some of that. But that, that's a kind of structural... Uh, containment that we need to be very receptive to. The local authorities won't let us get too big on that on that campus. And then, you know, I, I I think that you lose the the intimacy of the community if you get too large. So I I I think you know maybe in five to ten years we might climb up to twenty one hundred students. We're we're uh, fifteen hundred give or take on the undergraduate level still be able to do these things. We'll need some additional buildings. Um, from a financial stability perspective, that, that gives a lot of stability. But um, I don't want to be too large on the undergrad. You can expand a lot on the graduate level. And, and that's where we've found some real success with these, these other modalities. And certainly not in our PhD program, but we, we have a, a celebrated master's in classical education. Almost all of the students of which are active teachers in Arizona and in California. And uh, so they need a predominantly online education supplemented with, with some other engagements. 
it's not what we would want for an undergraduate path, but it makes sense for somebody who is actively engaged in the art of teaching and wants to go deeper. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the way that Catholic universities can sort of discern their own charism in a very real way. And the reason I'm thinking about that is that there's another Catholic university president who I really respect, Monsignor Jim Shea, who I'm sure you know from the University of Mary. And about a year ago, I asked, uh, I asked Monsignor Shea, the University of Mary, as you probably know, is undergoing this kind of um, reversion and renewal period in which the university is sort of more deeply embracing and identifying its sort of Catholic mission. And I asked him, you know, as that's happening, what percentage of students he hoped would come to the campus already as practicing Catholic? And to my surprise, he said that he, he hoped it wouldn't get much higher than 50. And I, I was surprised because I expected that he would want to be moving in the direction of sort of um, a fully Catholic campus. And he said, no, he said, uh, this university has always been a regional university. And I really like the idea of this being a place where people come because they want to study nursing or business or something. And uh, we can proclaim the gospel to them and catechize them. And maybe we won't, you know, some seeds will fall on rocky soil. But I sort of think that our, our charism is an evangelical charism. As I hear you talk, it sounds to me, and I think there's a, a viable place for that, but it's not the charism of everything. And as I hear you talk, it sounds to me like part of the charism of the University of Dallas, at least as I hear it, is to sort of help people who, who really may begin with um, perhaps an unfocused or an unpolished sort of Catholic vision of the world to really help them crystallize that to be able to, uh, again, sort of build culture from a ca deeply Catholic perspective. Am I reading that right? I, I think that's, that's um, partly right. Um, we have always attracted undergraduate students who want a really outstanding liberal arts education who are not Catholic. They all take our theology courses and benefit from them. So um, roughly about 75% of our undergraduate population um, at least begins as, as Catholic, and, and uh, we, we have some conversions. And we've got focused missionaries on campus um, uh, working on Bible studies with Catholic and non-Catholic students, and um, and so to those other religious communities I was I was talking about uh, a lot of spiritual direction and so forth. So yeah, for for Catholics coming in, I want I want that. Um, I want to be a place that welcomes um, non-Catholics to continue to do that. We've had Jewish, Muslim students, other Christian faiths, students without any faith, and we actually did some tracking of the uh, the experience of our non-Catholic students. I think last year, maybe a year and a half ago, and and um, they all listed the Catholicism of the University of Dallas as one of its most attractive features. Um, one on the front end, because you know the other thing we, we haven't really talked about is the student life side of a of a Catholic university. Um, there's a commitment to at least striving to live righteously in one's activities outside of the classroom. Uh, this. Bacchanalian uh, feast. Um, um, in some ways, but I understand that there are confessions available for the whole of tomorrow. So I, you know, I'm grateful for that. And in some ways, it might it might contribute to our efforts to 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 achieve that. And um, a proper sense of shame could be a wonderful prompt. <laughs> it, it works. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the I'm very clear with our prospective students that. You don't need to be Catholic to um, enter the University of Dallas. You won't be required to convert. You, you don't have to go to Mass. Um, and, and yet there's something that is um, um, uplifting and encouraging and deepening about being in the kind of environment that we provide. 
And um, I hear that from our alumni. So the graduate programs are, are much less evenly Catholic than, than the undergraduate, but I don't, I don't have it as a goal to only attract um, Catholic students and, and deepen their faith. But for those who are Catholic already, I want to make sure that that happens here. And um, for those who are um, interested in exploring Catholicism, I, I want there to be invitations. But I also want our non-Catholic students to, to flourish here. And who knows what seeds will uh, sprout. What about faculty and academic freedom? Because the church teaches in John Paul II and Exporte and everything, say academic freedom is a real thing, and it has to be prized, and it has to be um, enshrined in the character of the university, but circumscribed by truth and the common good. And it seems to me that in American Catholic universities, there are two kinds of models. And admittedly, this is my own formulation, so you don't have to accept it if you don't want. But it seems to me there's a kind of land of lakes mentality, which says, well, the, what circumscribes that freedom with the truth and the common good is the wider university context, the sort of totality of the community. And within that community, there are dissenting voices. There are voices that oppose even the truth and the common good. And we've seen this, you know, with professors at Notre Dame sort of writing letters in the Chicago Tribune, championing abortion and things like that. Um, and it's, it's held in some ways that, you know, you, there is a place within the, the Catholic university community under academic freedom for these dissenting voices, because, you know, it, it, it creates the sort of dialogue intention which allows for academic exploration and the development of truth and the better articulation of the common good and that sort of thing. And then the other alternative view is that, no, the, the circumscription of academic freedom by truth and the common good applies to each individual in their pursuit of academic studies. Which, which, to which one do you subscribe, if either? Neither. Um, so you, you, you rightly pointed to that passage, and, and uh, John Paul II repeats it three or four times throughout Ex Corde. Um, he's a creature of the university, and, and he, he had a deep appreciation for um, academic freedom. And, uh, but it needs to be circumscribed by the truth and, and the common good. At, at the heart of the Lando Lakes debacle was a settled conviction that one cannot be faithfully Catholic and really academically excellent. Which is the same as basically the sort of atheist fallacy that you can't you can't have both a God who imposes order for our flourishing. You can't be truly free if you are also under the truth. Right. That's right. Um, we're, in point of fact, as I mentioned Augustine earlier, right, we're, our, our freedom is grounded in subjection to the truth. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas um, recognizes that there, there is no free human action without the necessity of your will's inclination towards flourishing. Right? So, this, this interplay between um, necessity and subjection is precisely what makes freedom possible. So th there's, a, there's a spectrum of belief about uh, or, or uh, thought about what exactly academic freedom is. I think people often fall into thinking of it in terms of freedom of expression. It's, it's very different. Academic freedom's circumscription by the truth certainly entails fidelity to the insights of your discipline, right? So somebody who is going to defend the phlogiston theory of, of 
interaction um, ought not to be teaching chemistry, right? Because that's not how things work, right? Other disciplines are more difficult in um, determining, well, is this within disciplinary boundaries or not, right? So part of the review of faculty is um, a focus on whether or not they're really being excellent in their, in their field. St. John Paul II emphasizes this promotion of humanity, which is connected to what you were saying about culture before, that I think is entailed by what he means by the common good. So is your, is your research, is your teaching advancing the human good, the cultural good? Is it advancing humanity in some significant way, or is it destructive of it in some way? Okay, that's, that's another set of reflections that those charged with, with oversight need to be attentive to. And then if you're going to say things about those things that uh, we take to be settled as matters of, of faith and morals, are, are you accurately uh, describing them? Are you in some way deceptively describing them? Right? If, if you say, well, the church makes room for um, a position on, on abortion that it doesn't, right? are, are you misleading in some way? And, and if we were to have a, a speaker who's, who's engaged in a, um, you know, uh, articulating a position that is um, contrary to the church, do we, do we have people there who can say, well, that's not actually what the church teaches? Right? So in, in some ways saying this is what the church teaches, or you can, you can, you can believe this um, as, a, as a faithful Catholic, right? that in some ways is um, um, far more destructive because uh, many people don't know exactly. Um, so you've, you've got to be clear about what really is the case with regard to uh, Catholic teaching and, and what isn't. And um, so sort of honest atheism is preferable to dishonest Catholicism. Yes. As it were. Yeah. I, I want to go back, if we can, to this um, notion that you, you raised at the beginning about University of Dallas graduates going on to various leadership positions in various fields and things like that. It, and, and it seems to me that part of what you were doing is talking about the way in which uh, a, a classical formation in the in the in the Western tradition kind of helps people in order to uh, to be of service to humanity in those ways. But there, there's how, what is the balance? How do universities approach the balance between sort of being able to master the emerging sort of techniques, which are extraordinary? Machine learning technology is extraordinary, and we'll probably put Ed and I out of business in about fifteen minutes if we're not careful. And um, uh, so, there, so, so there's a way in which one must really be able to sort of get one's arms around those things, and at the same time be able to. Um, think about them reasonably incompetently. And it just seems like four years isn't very much time to even uh, begin to scratch the surface of both some sort of technical mastery and at the same time the kind of um, philosophical and theological formation for a worldview that allows one to think about what the thing is for. How do you think about what to prioritize pedagogically as you think through all of those things? To take a, a virtue-based approach to education, first and foremost, as opposed to skills-based. I mean, the skills are necessary acquisitions as you're cultivating the, the intellectual virtues. And you need to have requisite moral virtues in order to persevere in your studies, right? Um, what I mean by that is um, um, understanding the, the roots of things, right? So we do have a computer science major. Um, it's treated by some who study and, and teach in it as a liberal art, part of mathematics, deeply based in logic. Um, coding is, you know, a kind of language. And um, those students have all the rest of the core curriculum at their disposal. They have not played with the, the latest gadgets necessarily in the classroom, but they understand 
the roots of the discipline in ways that are radically advanced over um, the the students at other institutions who might have lots of neat and shiny things to uh, to play with that produce essays, right? So yeah, chatbot you know might be able to write a a passable essay, but um, JD has them write limericks. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> filthy filthy limericks no, about Canon Law. <laughs> That's actually more true than the filthy thing. But but there's 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 another thing that that we we spend a lot of time encouraging and are uh, plugging our students into, which is internship um, opportunities. So along the way, many of our many of our students are trying out what is what is it like to work with a physician? What is it like to work in a in a law firm? Have an internship. Um, get your hands dirty and and see what people are are messing with in those fields. But our graduates excel because they can write well, they, they speak effectively, they think clearly, and they, they go to the roots of whatever it is that their, their field is engaged in. They want to understand it from the ground up. And that allows genuine mastery so that then they can, they can um, rise in their exercise of, of uh, that particular field. What is the takeaway for po- for the, the people who are listening to this podcast who are not going to the University of Dallas and are not going to go to the University of Dallas? They should feel sad that they're not here. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're you're suggesting an approach to human formation which is very attractive, um, and uh, and 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 the most sort of in, the, the, the I think it's probably true that the best sort of ex, you know immersive experience of that is the university. But I th- I I come across more and more people who did not have that kind of university experience. I did not have that kind of experience. And it it, it shows that in a lot of ways that we can talk about. (laughs) No, I I have a stunted character, intellectually and morally, I'm aware of that. We can talk about that at home, dear. But the thing, um, (laughs) listen, we just come across more and more people who say, I hear about this kind of renewal in Catholic education, and I didn't have that. I went to large state university, and I'm very glad for what I learned there, but it wasn't this. Or I I paid a lot for um, Land Lakes Catholic University, and I didn't have this. And w- how could I get my arms around some of this? Yeah, no, it, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. When I first arrived here as as dean of the undergraduate college, um, I, I was meeting with a group of alumni who just said, "We want to continue to participate in in this education." And then I started thinking about others who never experienced it, and um, we we started. Um, hosting lectures in different locations, and and then um, I was able to to um, work with a benefactor to put together um, several years of basically free courses on Catholic faith and culture. We call it, and we've we've got videos available for free, workbooks, um, and open invitations to whoever wants to come in. And then um, working with with Claire um, Benegas, um, our vice president for marketing and communication, and um, Shannon Valenzuela, Doctor Valenzuela, and Doctor Michael West, um, we we thought, well, maybe maybe there's a, a way to um, uh, invite more people into this, and um, that became the Quest. I don't know if you've heard of the Quest, but EWTN aired it twice, and um, we're just about done with the second season of the quest. So this is a, a mini series that's intellectually engaging and inviting and opens up 
horizons for exploration, particularly for those who not had the benefits of a University of Dallas education or good reminders for those who have had that. And we're looking for additional ways. We, we bring in speakers. We've got podcast series ourselves, you know, not as, not as awesome as yours. Is, no, I wouldn't but, say uh, that. I mean, ours is not actually that awesome. <laughs> it's even, our, ours is even more awesome to, to be, to be <laughs> blunt. If but, I say that, can I have the doctorate or is that totally <laughs> off the table? Now? Well, if, if you look at our website, we, we, we have a St. Ambrose Center for Catholic Liberal Education and Culture. Um, and Liberal Learning for Life is, is listed there. You can find all kinds of material available there. Or you can just go straight to Liberal Learning for Life. But this is, this is the phrase that we've used to capture our efforts to um, externalize the University of Dallas, to, to provide it as um, a, a, um, a kind of feast without cost um, to those who are participating because we feel called to do that. One of the pillars of our, our new strategic plan is to find new and, and even more significant ways to be of service to church and country. And this is one of the ways in which we're endeavoring to do just that. Thanks. Yeah, that's very cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. And this has been a great conversation, Dr. Sanford, but we can't really let you go without our own inv open invitation. On this show of ours, we like to play a lot of games. Shenanigans are really the best part for us. And so... Um, we have prepared a couple of games for you. We don't have to play them all, but would you like would you like to play a game? Um, what kind of game? <laughs> it doesn't, the kind it of doesn't work that way. <laughs> sure, of, I'm game. Oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. Okay, Ed, you're gonna you're gonna take take the point on this. Are you? Is not? this like chess? It's not like chess. Is, is, it, is it, it getting uh, to know? It's more like target game. practice. It's more like target practice might be true. It's just these people want to know more about you, and we do too. Yeah, great. And uh, and uh, we find that perhaps. One of the things that we I, we like to do, and it's a game we sort of coined, and it's a way for me to... J.D., you probably know this because you've known him for a few years, has difficulty offering concise answers. Hmm. <laughs> um, and so to take a temperature on things, I will often restrict him to just saying yes or no. And he's actually finds that very difficult. Oh, it's not, there's a... Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So what I will sometimes do is I will present him with a list of things, and he will only be allowed to say yes or no. That's so non-Thomistic. Sick no, that's yes. exactly, that's exactly right. See that's how exactly easy it is? Right. <laughs> so the idea is, is that sort of, it's a scriptural game, because you're going to let your yes be yes, yes and no, no, be no. Because you need to qualify it in some way, and we'll probably... No, you're not allowed to qualify it in some way. You can make facial expressions or... You, you know, know how hard this is for a philosopher to yes, not exactly. qualify things? <laughs> or a university <laughs> yes. president. I... I I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> well, no, these are just things that we've noticed uh, around This is like, Dallas. this is Dallas, yes or no, vis-a-vis -vis things we've seen since we got to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> no, no preparation, Dallas, yes or no, is effectively yeah. this. Billy Bobs. Yes. Giant belt buckles. No. <laughs> the UD cap bar. Absolutely yes. Ice storms. Yes. <laughs> Controversial. Um, Texas Instruments. No. Yes. <laughs> uh, Shiner Beer. Yes. What was, the, what was going on there? There was a lot of processing yeah, I did. that one. What, what were you I weighing? drank a lot of Shiner Beer get, the get, first night I got into town, and I thought it was delightful. You were weighing Congratulations. <laughs> 
Well, actually, okay, so here's one for you. This is a slightly longer noun, but it's nevertheless something I observed, which I think is particular to Dallas because I've never seen it, which is combination Mexican cantina bars and Indian takeaway restaurants. Yes. <laughs> is, this a, is this a broad Dallas is phenomenon? Is this a normal thing this here? Is something it was fantastic. That happens? Yeah. I got to drink beer, order Indian food, and watch cricket on television, which I didn't... I didn't know you could do Partic- that. Particularly in, in DFW and, and um, Irving, Las Colinas. Fabulous. Great time. Okay. Whataburger. Yes. Okay. The Houston Texans. No. Deep fried charcuterie board. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I want one, right? The Dallas Cowboys. Yes. Terrell Owens. No. I don't actually know who that is. That makes yes, he's that a great made that fun for me. Um, FC Dallas. Yes, <laughs> that's that's the entire fan base of FC Dallas, <laughs> right there. By the way, Medieval everyone times. else is googling that on their phone or their watch right now. What the hell is FC Dallas? Medieval times. No, <laughs> I, I forgive me, but I have to intervene here. I. I spent most of my life living in the United Kingdom, and, and now I live back in the States with my wife and daughter. And whenever family come over from London to visit us, and it's their first time in their country, and I say, would you like the most authentic American experience possible? And they say, yes. I take them to medieval times. It is the most American thing in the world. I, I, I urge you it, it, to it, it, it's, it's It's the, the misnaming. Right. If if you no, that's you're what having makes it American. medieval times that's, experience, that's what's so good. I, I know, right, yeah. but I don't like to deceive people. I'm 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 a, I'm a truth seeker. I understand <laughs> that, but I mean the, the sort of promiscuous way that American culture confuses the Renaissance with medieval <laughs> times, and you know, I I love that. It's beautiful. Um, okay, uh, Willie Nelson. No. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I, this is your interview, and all. He's just wrong about that. I've never heard anyone say no to Willie Nelson. Well, you just did. Other than the IRS, obviously. <laughs> is the, wow. Um, Lawrence v. Texas. Jeez, Ed, come on. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what that case is. <laughs> That's an excellent dodge. Um, Chip and Joanna game. Sure. That is true. Sure. <laughs> well, I know. You, I think you did very well there. I, you know, I, I know what a, fully two-thirds of these things are. So no, you did a great job, but this one is harder because what we're going to play now is um, this is, uh, this is of course, Groundhog Weekend. We were invited to be here as part of the Groundhog festivities, and so we felt that we should contribute something to the groundhogging of it all. And so these are, I suppose, groundhog. I presume as the University of Dallas president that you are the world's foremost expert in groundhogs. I, I know a few things about Mormons. Well, let's see. Um, Groundhogs, Dr. Stanford, are considered the most solitary uh, members of the squirrel family. But how do they communicate with each other? Through chatter. Through chatter, you'd think. But it's whistling, I'm afraid. Groundhogs. Actually, uh, whistling pigs is one of the the nicknames for a groundhog. Oh, is that so? Wow, that was a nice recovery. That's very good. Okay. Did you know that there are no groundhogs native to Texas? No, I didn't. I didn't know that. Why would I know that? Hey, what is going on then? What is what is this yeah, hunting? Can you of, explain to us? Is this, this like the Texas equivalent of a snark hunt? Like you know, this is you get I, a prize uh, if you catch the groundhog, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I, I, it, it, it's the whimsy of University of Dallas students to sixty years ago establish a festivity dedicated to an animal that doesn't exist in these regions. I see, that's very. 
That's beautiful. Um, did Punks <laughs> did Punxsutawney Phil see his um, shadow this year? Do you know? He did. He did. It, it does, but does the University of Dallas have its own, you know, Irving Irv or something like that? Do you have your own Groundhog that you can? I, I believe it's stuffed. Um, Groundhog Day is not really about the groundhog seeing or not seeing his shadow. It's it's about making something oh, watching out of, him burn. It's it's about <laughs> making something <laughs> out of nothing. It's, it's deeply Catholic. It's deeply because <laughs> because we're 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 saying um, let there be a celebration without really caring about you know what happens in Pennsylvania or anywhere this else. Is fe- this is like a. This is a feast of any number of people who have recently been removed from the calendar for the crime of never having existed, but here at the University of Dallas. And I really, I can't ask you any more questions after that. You've done very well. Thank you for putting up with us, Dr. Sanford. Please give him a round of applause. And, uh, we're, what, what I want to say, what I actually said before J.D. proposed the uh, honorary degrees is um, the pillar has really become a pillar of significant and serious reflection on matters in the church. I want to thank you both for the bold step you took in founding the pillar. I know it's not been easy. You've got already a remarkable reach and the fidelity of your reporting and the depth of your reflections coupled with a sense of humor. Whimsy. Um, is, Fantastic is, dress sense. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a winning formula. And thank, thank you, you for so what much. you're doing. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for being seen in public with us. That's a rare thing. These days we're very grateful. I'll even do it again. <laughs> oh, wow, that's wonderful. When we come back for the doctorates, we'll be back here at the University of Dallas. <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Sanford. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the Pillar Podcast, a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And especially we're grateful uh, today for our guest, the president of the University of Dallas, Dr. Jonathan Sanford. Thank you, Dr. Sanford. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you.